I'm just really excited to introduce to you Steve Winterberg today. And just so you know how he ended up standing right here at this moment, um, Pastor Scott had already planned on being in Houston, Texas today for a pastor's gathering. And um, yesterday morning, Scott called me and said that the pastor we had planned to be here today unfortunately got sick. And so we were around 10. What time did you get a phone call? Noon. Noon. Yesterday. <laughs> Noon. Um, these were the things before we, uh, I won't read them all, but these are some things we went through in our brains. Uh, mostly me, Scott's like, he's probably in Houston reading this, like, you wanted to do this? But um, I mean, I thought about us watching The Chosen because, you know, I love that. I thought when I was a teacher, I would do things where like I would put a sticker or a note card underneath one chair and that kid would have to like lead the class. So I thought, what if we just, in, like one of you right now, look under your chair. I'm just joking. There's no, but I was like, you get to preach. Congratulations. We thought about doing a coloring contest, like with pictures from John, the book of John. Anyways, all of that to say, after running through <laughs> lots of options, we called Steve. And just so you know, Steve is a part of our leadership board here. He's also been a professor for many years. He's an incredible teacher and scholar. And his wife, Shelly, is also very fantastic. I should mention, you might have seen her up here before because she is, um, works with um, Every Child Oregon and the Christmas kicks we did. Um, she's been a big part of that. So if you could really, really give him a round of applause. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, he's had a few hours to prepare for this. I was thinking of that verse in, in the Bible that says, be ready in season and out of season to give, you know, give your testimony or with like a few hours notice. <laughs> and we told them to, what chapter to preach on. <laughs> so I'm very excited. Thank you, Steve. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you, Olivia. <clears throat> I'm reminded, I was reminded actually yesterday, um, for those of you who don't know me, I spent several years working in South Asia. Uh, and on almost any occasion, walking into a church setting as a white man, you would be invited to speak. And so you sort of had to be on the fly and ready and prepared. Um, so thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, even uh, though I might have appreciated a few more moments to prepare. <clears throat> way back, way back in the Stone Age, long before Spotify, iPhones, YouTube, and Pandora, Way back in the 1990s, I was in high school, and I did what almost every younger sibling would have done in my situation. My sister, who is four years older than me, had a CD player in her room, and I did not. For some reason, she left her CD player at home when she went off to college. I would sneak in while she was away at college to listen to her CDs. Knowing that my sister was very clean and had everything in her room meticulously placed, I tried to be careful while using her uh, CD player. I would do everything I could to make sure I placed everything back exactly where I had found it. I would put the CD back in its original case, carefully put it in the CD rack where I had found it. Thinking that I was cunning and sly, I generally assumed that I had gotten away uh, with using her things without permission, that I had escaped. After a few months of being away, my sister came home from college to visit. Within seconds of her walking into her room, I heard a yell from down the hall. Who has been listening to my CD player? I, of course, was guilty. And while this story is one that is now often repeated in my family, in the moment, I didn't love being accused. In many ways, I deserved my sister's accusation, her frustration, her anger. In the strict rules of teenage possessions, I had violated the rules. I had disrespected her by using her things. Nonetheless, being accused, even when we're guilty, 
is not a pleasant experience. When accused, my response is usually to become defensive, to make excuses, or to shift blame. Today's story comes from John chapter 8. It is a story that many of us have heard, where a woman in her shame stands accused by powerful leaders. Let's turn to today's scripture. It's found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, well, I should also mention verse 53 of the prior chapter is kind of connected. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, and where all the people had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. As we discuss today's passage, I should warn you that this is probably a PG-13 sermon. This passage deals with some difficult issues and may be a bit graphic. First, let me provide a little background and context for this passage. The four Gospels of Jesus had different themes. As is emerging in this sermon series on John, a dominant theme in this Gospel is of Jesus as King and as Messiah. Jesus' kingship would be different and revolutionary from the cultural milieu and expectations of the first century. From scandalously speaking to a woman in John chapter 4, not only a woman, but a half-breed outcast enemy Samaritan woman, and inviting her into God's story, to his provision for the hungry and feeding the 5,000, his control over nature is demonstrated in his walking on water to the miraculous healing of a paralyzed man and an official son. Jesus' ministry and work, as revealed in the Gospel of John, is telling us that this king, this kingdom, would be different. This king has and would turn the world on its head. John chapter 7, just before our, before our passage today, indicates that people were questioning who this Jesus was. There was unbelief, indeed a simmering hostility from the Jewish religious leaders towards Jesus and his message. Jesus' king over a different kingdom is an important aspect to remember as we reflect on this passage in John chapter 8. It is also important to note that this passage has received significant scrutiny among scholars over the years. The oldest biblical manuscripts do not contain this story. Most scholars feel that John chapter 7 verse 53 through 8 verse 11 is out of place, is disjointed from the text, and stylistically differs from, its, from the neighboring passages. Some manuscripts place this story at the end of Luke, and stylistically, many scholars say it fits better in the synoptic gospel, gospels as opposed to the book of John. 
Acknowledging all of this debate, Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright argues that the story seems to fit within a mood change within the gospel, where in chapter 8, Jesus becomes harsher and more critical, realizing, and I quote, just how steeped in their own patterns of thinking his Judean contemporaries had become, and how devastatingly unlike God's patterns of thinking they were. Wright then argues that this story in John 8 provides a solid pivot toward the critique of the Pharisees and the frustration that Jesus seems to have with their persistent misunderstanding and of his message of his message and ministry. It's also important for me to discuss the role of women during this time period. It's easy for us to read our own cultural values and context into the biblical text, but the culture of the day was dramatically different from our own. In some ways, American culture takes for granted that the little guy or the underdog is the hero. In ancient Rome, this notion was utterly ridiculous and absurd. The dominant, the powerful, the wealthy were all that mattered. A Roman man or a king could do as he pleased with whomever he pleased. He would win in whatever way was necessary as a bullying thug out to achieve whatever ambitious goals he had set his mind on. His wife... His slaves were his belongings and property, and he could do whatever he wanted with his belongings in the same way that you and I can do what we want with our living room furniture or the plants and grass out of, the, out of view of the HOA in the backyard. As a result, a Roman man had every expectation that his belongings, his wife, his concubines, his slaves of any age, would fulfill whatever wish and desire he had. The Jewish culture of the day was slightly better, but not much. Women stayed at home as it was their obligation to remain pure. In Jewish custom and culture, a man would give a gift or a bride price to his fiancé's father as a way to honor them for the way that they had cared for and raised his soon-to-be wife. If a woman was a virgin at marriage, her father could command a far higher bride price than if she was not, or if she was suspected of being promiscuous. In the culture, the burden of proving she was in fact a virgin at marriage fell on the woman. In the same way, a woman accused of adultery was considered guilty until she could successfully prove her innocence. Today in America, we generally view men as being more sexually aggressive, but in the Jewish culture of the day, women were seen as the sexual aggressors. As a result, men were viewed so weak that they were easily seduced by conniving women. As a result, men needed to be protected from their women and their attempts to seduce them. Thus, the onerous burden of maintaining sexual purity for all in the community and all in the house, all in the family, fell on the women. Every action they took could be misconstrued or misunderstood as seduction. As a result, one of the easiest ways to prove, to reliably prove your innocence and to maintain purity for the house and community was to rarely leave your house or when you did, to ensure that a reliable chaperone was always present who could vouch for your purity. How else would a woman be able to prove her virginity or her faithfulness? Men clearly had a higher status in the culture of the day. In fact, Jewish rabbi Yehuda in the second century famously taught that every Jewish man should pray daily a prayer of gratitude to God that they had not been created as, and I quote, a heathen, a woman, or a slave. So just in case it isn't clear, 
Our passage today describing the ministry of Jesus is nothing short of revolutionary, nothing less than utter absurdity to those in his day, and spectacularly demonstrates an offer of radical humanizing hope for women and as a result for all of us. Indeed, Jesus was overthrowing the power and authority of darkness and establishing a heaven-breaking-down-to-a-broken-earth kingdom where light, as we will learn later in John 8, overcomes the darkness. With this background in mind, let us return to the text. Verses 2 through 6. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. After reading these verses, a few questions emerge. Why was the woman brought in person? Couldn't she stayed out, have stayed out of sight in her shame while the accusers uh, went to Jesus to ask for advice? Where was the other party to her sin? Adultery isn't a sin that can be committed alone. So why didn't the accusers bring along the man who was with her when she was discovered in sin? Since an accusation of this kind required a visual witness— it is often argued that the woman was literally dragged from the offense. What I mean is, the accuser or accusers saw the woman literally engaged in sexual activity and most likely brought her to Jesus naked or close to naked. If this was the case, where was the man? Why hasn't he been brought there naked and accused? The accusers in verse 5 refer to the law of Moses and say that it commands us to stone such women. And they asked Jesus his perspective. The passage in the Torah, in the Old Testament, that the Pharisees were referring to comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22. In verses 22 through 24 of that chapter, it says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Notice anything different? Interestingly, the accusers, the Pharisees, seem to be neglecting a part of the law of Moses. The passage in John does not indicate that the woman caught in adultery is pledged or an engaged woman. But either way, what is clear from Deuteronomy is that the Pharisees were leaving out the part about the man being stoned or killed along with the woman. Which leads us to verse 6, which says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The Pharisees cared nothing about this woman. She wasn't a human being with a life, with a family, with dignity. She was a pawn, an instrument in the growing concerns about Jesus and his threat to their power and status. They really didn't care what Jesus' judgment of her was because in their mind, Jesus was left with only two options. Either he could judge her and she could say that she deserved to be stoned. In the Pharisees' mind, this would uphold the law of Moses, but it meant that Jesus was going to have to challenge Roman authority. 
Execution was the role of the Roman government, not the role of the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus risked violating Roman law if he said that stoning the woman was the right course of action. At the same time, Jesus um, sort of, if he approved that she was to be stoned, would seemingly contradict his message and ministry of forgiveness. On the other hand, if Jesus condoned her sin, then the Pharisees would have accused him of blasphemy, that he had disregarded or thrown out the Torah, the law, which of course was not Jesus' mission. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus was a cunning trick, meant to get rid of Jesus. He was challenging their authority and their power, and he had to go. The woman in the story, then, is nothing more than a pawn. The woman in the story, then, is nothing more than a pawn, a means to an end. Her shame, her story, her life, her potential death, her potential execution, none of it mattered to the Pharisees. She was just simply something that was temporarily useful, but easily disposed of without any concern. Not only was the woman simply a means to an end, but the Pharisees clearly misused scripture in a similar way. They used the law of Moses to fit into their machinations, their plotting, their scheming. Their question to Jesus deliberately left out parts of scripture. Thus, scripture was simply a tool to achieve their own goals and ambitions. They forced scripture down to fit into a box in order to achieve their plans. Now, this is hard, but I do question how we misuse scripture, or do we? I'll never forget about a decade ago, I had a friend who became an American citizen, and I went to his swearing-in service. Uh, This was when we were living in Southern California at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Afterward, different groups were all around from, I mean, just all different groups were all around trying to sign up these new citizens to join their cause. One group came over to my friend and said, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Nope, Bible doesn't say that. Might be a good thought, but the Bible doesn't say it. They were misusing scripture to achieve their own goal or saying something was a part of scripture that wasn't. I'm struck by contemporary discourse and conversation on biblical freedom. If we think that biblical freedom is about doing what we want, we have misunderstood God's word. Biblical freedom is freedom from our selfish ambitions. Biblical freedom is about being free to love God, free to love neighbor, free to pursue truth and beauty, and not about our own selfishness. Elijah Beloyi, a South African scholar, argues that this was an intended misreading and misinterpretation of the Bible by the Pharisees to further their own aims. This kind of Bible reading takes place when Bible readers want to use the Bible to execute their own agendas. Church, do we do this? Continuing in verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote. The text simply doesn't say. Many scholars have speculated over the years. Maybe he was writing down the sins of the accusers. Maybe he was writing down uh, the names of all of the accusers that had committed adultery themselves. 
Maybe he was doodling as a way to physically demonstrate the ridiculousness of the question. Or maybe he was doodling as a way to divert the eyes off of the naked accused woman in her shame. We simply don't know. In verse 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They kept on questioning him. This persistent questioning makes me think of my son. Can I play Minecraft? Can I play Minecraft? Can I play Minecraft? Maybe later, son. Can I play Minecraft? I said, later. I want to play Minecraft. What did I say? You said, later, dad. And then I get to experience a whopping two seconds of peace before I hear, it's later now. Can I play Minecraft? It's interesting that Jesus seemingly didn't answer their question. The biblical text doesn't say why. It doesn't answer, it doesn't say why he doesn't answer their question. But the determination and the persistence of the accusers is clear. They were determined to get Jesus into their trap. When Jesus finally does say something, He seems to avoid a direct answer to their question. Jesus eventually answers them with a redirection. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus wisely, in diverting attention onto the accusers, removed the burden of proof from the woman and placed the burden on the Pharisees. In Jewish custom, the first accuser would have been obliged to cast the first stone on the accused. In order, the witnesses to the the sin would have each had to throw a stone. The first stone, though, bore a significant burden. According to John Ari Otu, a Nigerian Christian scholar, in ancient Judah, it was believed that if the accusations were false, the blood of the victim would be on the head of the principal witness or the first stone thrower. So the principal witness does not, if the principal witness does not cast a stone, neither can the other witnesses. And should the accusation be unfair, this person will receive the punishment of the innocent person. Thus, the wise, loving, and protective pivot of Jesus shifts the burden of proof from the accused woman, who according to Jewish custom needed to prove her innocence, onto the hypocritical accusers. If any one of you is without sin, let them be the first to throw a stone at her. This statement indicates how the kingdom, this kingdom, the kingdom of this new king, the Messiah, the Christ, would be radically different. The powers and authority in, in the powers and authority would be held responsible. They could no longer use their authority in a winners-take-all bullying fashion. They cannot do as they please with their belongings. This king would be different. Thus, Jesus continues to reveal himself as a Messiah and king of an upside-down kingdom, to use the words of Donald Cradle, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Women, then, are invited in as full members, as valued humans, worthy of dignity and respect, to be seen, heard, and empowered. As verse 9 indicates, the accusers don't want this burden. They don't want to own it. They walk away 
They leave. They drop their stones. Jesus responds to their departure by asking the woman in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She responds, No, sir. Jesus then said, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice Jesus' response to the woman. He protects her. He does not allow the Pharisees to accomplish their goal. He thwarts their plans and limits their power over the accused woman. As followers of Christ, how can we protect those our society and culture don't value? How can we follow Jesus in protecting those who, given their circumstances, need a little assistance? Foster children, the homeless, the addicted, the formerly incarcerated, those with mental and emotional health concerns, those with physical disabilities, refugees, our neighbors in crisis. Second, Jesus doesn't condemn the woman. She has been accused by the Pharisees, but she has not been condemned. Accusations are never fun, even when we're guilty. Just like in my simple little story about my sister's CD player, accusations are unpleasant. But Jesus offers hope rather than condemnation. He offers a second chance, another opportunity. How can we follow Jesus into extending grace and forgiveness? How can we avoid condemning and judging others? How can we extend the opportunity for those around us to have another chance? Maybe with our family and friends who have differing political opinions. Maybe for those that have wronged us. Maybe for those who we feel have wronged our society or our world. Jesus models for us a path beyond condemnation. Notice that Jesus also doesn't liberate the woman, at least not in the anticipated way. Elijah Beloyi adds that the Pharisees and scribes expected that Jesus would either condemn or liberate the woman, but his statement does neither of the two. Condemnation and liberation were both understood as legal codes where the judge would either decide one or the other. Now to Jesus, now for Jesus, to have told them to look at their own sins would have turned it into a moral issue that was redirected to them all instead of the woman alone. In other words, if this had been a case that was brought before a judge, the judge would have been limited in his options. He could have chosen to condemn the woman or he could let her go free to do whatever she wanted. But Jesus found a middle, a nuanced way. She is not condemned, but she is also not allowed to go away unchanged. Out of the woman's encounter with Jesus, she is challenged and called to be different, to sin no more. The forgiveness of Jesus doesn't leave her to do whatever she wants, but rather her liberation is to a different life, to a life of purity, of dignity, and hope. She isn't left in her shame and sin. Rather, she has been, eleva she's been elevated to a valued status. Jesus didn't condemn her, but he called her to more. What is the more that Jesus is calling you to? In what ways is Jesus liberating us to be more? Now, what does this mean for us today? Certainly, we are all guilty and in need of forgiveness. 
Just as I was guilty when I was accused of stealing, uh, of using my sister's CD player, we stand accused. Jesus, in his revolutionary grace and mercy displayed in this story and on the cross, transforms our condemnation into hope, dignity, and a new opportunity, a second chance. My six-year-old son has recently latched onto a song called Burn the Ships by For King and Country. Most likely, he is intrigued by the bomb that burns a ship down in the music video. Nonetheless, it is all about burning the past, letting it go, and starting anew. Jesus offers us that chance. He takes us from a place of shame, guilt, and condemnation, and moves us to change, transformation, and new beginnings. Second, We can advocate and speak up on behalf of those who need protection. I hope and pray that we have been so impacted and transformed by our King, by Jesus, that we model his wise compassion and clear advocacy on behalf of our neighbors. Who in our communities, in our country, and in our world needs protection? Protection from the powers of accusation and condemnation. How can we extend dignity to those who are experiencing shame? How can we shift the burden of proof away from those who are being crushed by its overwhelming weight? Third, we can pray that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts. Um, It was really difficult as I was preparing this, uh, not in some ways to place myself in the role of the Pharisee or the accuser. I fear that I often, too often live as the accuser, using scripture to achieve my own goals and ambitions, using scripture to point out everyone else's failings, shame, and guilt while glossing over my own. Our very broken discourse in this country is overflowing with pharisaical accusations and egregious misuse of scripture to further goals and aspirations. I'm just not sure that we as Christians are doing a very good job of dropping stones and walking away recognizing that we too are, in, are daily in need of grace, in need of a savior, in need of the transformative work of King Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Recently, my wife and I have been watching a show called Cheer on Netflix. It's a docuseries about a, cheerle- a competitive cheerleading team from Navarro College, which is a junior college in Corsicana, Texas. The series highlights how the love and discipline provided by the program and the coach encourages and motivates the cheerleaders to be better. One girl on the team is named Lexi. She comes from a broken home, got into a lot of trouble due to poor decisions prior to coming into the program. Being closed off, the series shows how Lexi opens up and begins to trust the coach. At one point, Lexi makes another poor decision and is forced to leave the team and go back to Houston, which is her hometown. The coach says, my door is always open. I can't be with you in Houston when you are making making decisions, and you can't be be here because you made poor decisions. But my door is always open when you need it. The coach, rather than condemning or judging, extends an invitation to be better, to be something better, to be something more. In a similar way, Jesus is calling us to something more to a life free from condemnation, to a life of following Jesus into protecting our neighbors, to a life free from sin, a life free to love God and and free from our own selfish ambitions. How is Jesus calling you to something more?
stepped in for me and um, like you said to advocate and to step in for people um, because that's what Jesus does for us and um, so I'm just so grateful um, that you would bring such a I can't believe you you did that in a few hours by the way Um, (laughs) but I'm so grateful that you would come and um, just like Jesus did give us the grace the coziness of grace but also um, the like gumption of truth and and that's what he did for that woman so that we are changed um, and we are transformed because of Jesus. And so um, thank you so much for that today. Thank you for being here. And um, we're just excited to continue in John. This book is so rich um, and we're excited to do it together. So I pray that the Lord Emmanuel is with you this week as you go and we will see you next Sunday.